So this morning, I have the awesome opportunity to introduce to you one of uh, my friends. Actually, I can't remember when we met. I think I probably wasn't born yet. <laughs> um, today, we have Duffy Robbins, and Duffy and Maggie are here with us. They're like family to me. Uh, we shared many holidays together, uh, and I became close with their two daughters, Erin and Katie, as we grew up. Um, many of you may know Duffy from his speaking. He speaks uh, all across the world and the nation on a regular basis, places such like creation and things like that. Um, Duffy is currently the professor of Christian ministries at Grove City College. He spent a long time at Eastern University. Um, he's a 35-plus year veteran and expert in youth ministry. Um, Duffy speaks around the world. He's the author of a number of books. He's hilarious. But my favorite part is both Maggie and Duffy are the real deal, and they have a huge heart for the Lord and the local body. So would you welcome, me, welcome Duffy Robbins? Uh, first of all, Mark, thanks for that introduction, brother. Yeah, we, I, I mean, yeah, I think, I think Mark maybe was just uh, a baby when, or, or very, very young when we first met, and uh, I appreciate that introduction. It's funny because whenever anybody says somebody is a youth ministry expert, uh, I don't know about you, but I just think that's, uh, I don't know, it just sounds so presumptuous. It reminds me of a conversation I had uh, with the president of our university, uh, where I used to teach uh, at Eastern University. Uh, I was having a conversation one morning with our president, Roberta Hassanus, and in the course of that conversation, Dr. Hassanus referred to me as a youth ministry expert. And, of course, uh, most of us know that uh, expert is a word that comes from two words, ex meaning has been and spurt meaning drip under pressure. And, uh, and so I, I, I knew that this, uh, I knew this wasn't really legit, but, but this is the president of our, uh, you know, college. And so I, I wanted to be gracious about it, but I tried to sort of feign modesty. And, and, and so uh, I was trying to explain to Dr. Hestonis that actually, uh, although I've been doing youth ministry for a long time, uh, my real job now is I train youth workers and people who care about teenagers, and I speak to a lot of teenagers uh, and, and parents and people like that. And then at Grove City College, I teach uh, people who are going to go into ministry. And I said, really, truth be told, if it was only guys like me, there wouldn't be any youth ministry being done because the real heart and soul of youth ministry are the people like at this church, volunteers and youth workers who actually work week in and week out with those kids, loving on them. And I wanted her to understand that my role is kind of a helping role. But, but I decided since, since this was the president of our school, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, my role is just a helping role. I decided I was going to say, you don't understand, Dr. Hesterness, my role is an ancillary role, which means helping role. But uh, I, I could not, uh, I just couldn't come up with that word. You know, it just, just, uh, just I think, a little bit of intimidation, I don't get a ton of FaceTime with the president of our school, nor do I desire it, but I don't. And, uh, and, and, and frankly, I think I was a little bit sort of uh, stressed by the oak panel splendor of her office uh, compared to the industrial green cinder block in mine. And, uh, and so anyway, I sort of choked under pressure. And what I ended up saying to her is, oh, you know what, Dr. Hessen, <laughs> you know, no, thank you so much, but you don't understand uh, my role in, in youth ministry, my role is, is uh, it's more of a, I, I could not, I, my role in youth ministry, it's more of an axillary role. 
Now, the problem with the word axillary is that that's a term that actually refers to underarm hair. But, but here's what's interesting. I don't know if she didn't know what axillary meant, but couldn't admit that because she's a university president. Or if she did know what it meant, all I know is she looked me square in the face. She said, you're right. And really, uh, really kind of gave me a fresh perspective on, uh, on my role in the body of Christ. So, uh, yeah, I, I am delighted to be here. And I was here uh, several years ago. I did a seminar for parents. I distinctly remember that night because on the way back home, I got stopped by one of the local policemen uh, for running a stop sign. <sighs> and, uh, and anyway, I, I pled to him. I said, look, I have no idea where I am. I'm so lost. And, uh, and, and he didn't give me a ticket. So I, I still feel a sense of gratitude and grace for this place. So thanks again for letting me come back. We'll start this morning with a little bit of a question. Uh, how many of you in here uh, have ever heard this phrase? Does anybody know what it means to have a DTR talk? A DTR. Just raise your hand if you know what it means to have a DTR talk. A DTR. Yeah, a few people do. Anybody DTR talk? Anybody over here? Yeah, okay. Way back there in the back. You, yes. Yeah, yeah. Would you would you mind just, just yell out? What is What does it mean to have... A, yeah, a DT, yeah, you, yeah, the one looking around hoping it's somebody else. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, what is a, and yell it out so I don't have to ask you to stand up. What is a DTR talk? Just give me a quick definition. You're right. Define, she said it's define the relationship. DTR, define the relationship, right? So, so like according to the Urban Dictionary, uh, a DTR talk is when two people discuss their mutual understanding of a romantic relationship. So they define the relationship. You know, are we, are we dating? Are we just hanging out? Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? Are we exclusive? Uh, does this mean now you're going to be buying my meals? Uh, are you giving me a ring? Uh, are you breaking up with me? Uh, have we been married 12 years? Do we have three children and a mortgage? Uh, define the relationship. You, you, you try to sort of uh, explain the status, define the status of the current relationship, my wife and I, uh, and Maggie is actually here uh, today. Uh, she steps out during the sermon to, uh, to have a smoke, but but uh, actually, no. she's coming to the second service. But but uh, but uh, you know, Maggie and I uh, back uh, in May we had our anniversary, and so we we're having breakfast that morning, and we're sort of having uh, a define the relationship conversation, and um, and we were we were sort of laughing together about how. Uh, you know, uh, how young we were when we, when we got married. And, and we were talking about how blessed we feel, um, all these years later, uh, you know, that we started actually taking social security this year. And we still actually like each other a lot. And I said, yes, Maggie, we are officially friends with benefits. Uh, uh define the relationship. That, that, that means to kind of consider the status of your relationship. And that's what we want to do. This morning, that's what we want to do next week in these two Sundays that I get a chance to be with you. Uh, this passage that Mark read with us a few moments ago in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, um, we actually see Jesus in a, in a very stark and, and serious way, in a sense, having to define the relationship conversation with his disciples. So, so let's look at this passage a little bit more broadly if you go to Luke chapter 9, I want to begin reading in verse 18. And I'm going to put this up on the screen, so if you'd like to follow along there, you may. 
But Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, to find the relationship. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It had been um, an exhilarating journey uh, up to this point for the disciples. I mean, the opening verses of chapter 9, we didn't read them this morning, but Jesus actually summons all 12 disciples together, and he tells them they're going to be sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then with that commission still sort of ringing in their ears, blowing their mind, they share this amazing miracle uh, in verses 10 to 17 where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And in fact, we know it was more than 5,000 people because that doesn't actually include the women and the children. He fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. And then, and then uh, there's this sort of crescendo of excitement with this, this, this mind-blowing conversation in verse 18 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that? And honestly, it's kind of fascinating, I think, and, and almost a little bit amusing because the disciples, you know, they're, they're not exactly sure uh, at this point. They're not really sure. You remember it's kind of this awkward moment. You see it in the text uh, where they're kind of, you know, uh, staring at their feet. You go, well, you know, some say Elijah, and, you know, some say John the Baptist, and some say Jim Caviezel, and some say Gandalf. I mean, they really don't know exactly. They're, they're sort of befuddled by the whole thing. They see it. They're moved by it. They're stunned by it. But there's still a good bit of confusion. And then Jesus says, no, 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 no. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is always willing to speak up, declares, you are the Christ of God. You, you, you are the Christ of God. And immediately, and we know this from Matthew's account of this very same conversation in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, that Jesus then says, blessed are you, Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean, imagine, imagine the, the, the wonder, the amazement of this, of this moment, because they, they've now just heard Jesus, really for the first time, so far as we can tell in the Gospels, in the clearest possible terms, say to them, yes, yes, I am the Messiah. I am a long-awaited Messiah. I mean, this is, this is exciting stuff, right? I mean, the, the disciples are all gathered together with Jesus. It's kind of this mountaintop moment. The disciples are like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We are sent out. Uh, 
uh, Jesus is the Messiah. We get, you know, free bread and fish anytime we want it. Uh, come on, Eric, group hug. Let's take a selfie. Uh, Judas, would you take the picture? I mean, there's just this sense of, of wonder and, and sort of awe. They, they, they can't believe it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus kind of douses the moment with ice water because he says, um, okay, but, uh, you know what, guys? Before we go any further, uh, we probably need to have a define the relationship talk. Let, let, let's just talk for a minute about what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of, of me. And, and let me just stop here to say, I, I suspect that if Jesus were here this morning listening listening to you guys sing, listening to our prayers, listening uh, to our, our thoughts and knowing our hearts, he probably would say something very, very similar to us. Because, because for Jesus, authentic worship, authentic discipleship always comes back to this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Not, not your church, not your family members, not your membership, not your you know Spotify worship music playlist. Who do you say that I am? And if you want to be my disciple... What does that mean? What does that really mean in your life? How do you define that relationship? And that brings us to these words that Mark led us in reading from Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says to the disciples, okay, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, and follow me. Um, what does it mean? What does that mean to follow Jesus? In this one verse, Jesus gives this very vivid picture of, 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 of what it means to be his disciple. And he does this by really using two very basic, very stunning ideas. What does it mean to be a follower? First of all, you see this in the text. When you talk about being a disciple of Jesus, if you want to define that relationship, it begins with this phrase. Any disciple of Jesus has to deny yourself. We have to deny ourselves. It seems kind of, almost kind of crazy, like a little bit backwards. Uh, but, but Jesus uh, sort of explains that discipleship is a magnificent yes, but it is protected and fortified by a very real no. Uh, discipleship is a magnificent yes, but that yes is protected and fortified by a very real no. I'll never forget May 20th, 1973. That was the day uh, I got married. And Maggie, uh, who got married the same day, we had been, we had been dating for three years. And, and, you know, I had just become a Christian shortly before I met her. And right away, I knew that as a Christian, there were some things were going to have to change in my life. I knew that. I was a freshman in college. University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And, uh, and one of the things that was going to have to change was the way I did dating. I knew this. <clears throat> and, and so I started praying right away that God <clears throat> would give me a Christian girl to date. Um, in fact, many, many was a night. I just kneel there at my bed and say, God, you know, give me a spirit filled fox. And, uh, <clears throat> I guess, you know, uh, she was praying the same thing. And, 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 and so anyway, what's funny 
anyway, uh, anyway, so now we, we dated for three years and it's our wedding day. And I know a lot of you here, uh, this morning are married and, 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 and I don't know how it kind of happened with you, but I don't care for me. I don't care how much you think about marriage and wonder about marriage and sort of dream about what it might be like. There's, there, it, it doesn't, there, there's always some point where it finally hits you. Holy cow. Like that's, oh, oh, like for me, you know what happened for me? It was when we were all in the sanctuary and, and I was in the front. And my buddy's up here, you know, the groomsman, and my mom and my dad. And all of a sudden, everybody stood up, and the music started. And she appears in the back of the room, and it just, it's like, all of a sudden, I'm like, holy cow. There's going to be a wedding in here. <clears throat> and I am playing a key role in it. And I mean, it's not going to be like the, like the prom. I'm going to return the tux and keep the girl. And, and, uh, it's going to be so, so totally different from any date we've ever had. And, and, and all of a sudden my mind just starts spinning with the implications of what is just about to happen in the next few moments of my life. That, that every chapter of my life, every chapter of my story is going to be impacted by the next few paragraphs in the book. And, and that's when she starts down the aisle. And, and she was about maybe, I'm going to say, 50 feet away from me. And it was the first time I'd really seen her that day. Because you know the tradition, um, you know, the bride doesn't see the groom on the day of the wedding, right? Because she, she, might, she might change her mind. And, and I remember when I saw her, it was the first time we'd made eye contact. And there she was. And, uh, and, and I'm just overwhelmed with all these emotions and all these thoughts and, and the decision that I'm getting ready to make. And, and when I saw her, I just, and maybe I'm just mushy, I don't know, but or emotional, all I know is, you know, tears. You start rolling down my cheeks. You know, because I start thinking about all the other women that are going to miss out. <laughs> I, I realize in just a minute, I'm getting ready to say yes to this woman. But I also understand that if this yes is a genuine yes, then in some ways, in some sense, it means no to every other woman on the planet who is not this woman. You see, that's the nature of a genuine yes. Discipleship is a magnificent yes. It's a magnificent yes, but it's protected and fortified and wrapped up in a very real no. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You want to say yes to me? If you want to be my disciple, you'll have to be willing to say some genuine no's. Uh, you have to deny yourself. In fact, listen to this. Luke chapter 14, a few chapters later, verse 26, look at this. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you know, some of you might be sitting there and go, well, well, this is awesome. Like, I'm, I'm halfway there. I already hate a bunch of those people. Uh, that, that's not actually what Jesus is saying to us here. Uh, what he is saying is, yes, of course, it is important to love your brother and your sister, honor your father and your mother. What he's saying is, for every other love in your life, no matter how appropriate it is, it should look like hatred in comparison to your love for Jesus. That's the power of this. Yes. And, and see, here's the problem, men and women. There are a lot of us who are willing to say yes to Jesus. 
but we're not willing to say no to the stuff in our lives that's not Jesus. And any genuine yes, any genuine yes is always going to be fortified and animated and backed up with some very real no's. That's the nature of discipleship. You have to deny yourself. And actually, the Greek verb here is a very strong word. It it means almost literally forget that you exist. Forget that, cease to consider your own interest in the slightest degree. And of course, we don't have to go back 2,000 years to understand the weight of of, of that statement. Uh, Because we, we are, today, right now, we live in a culture that celebrates and elevates the self above all else. Uh, some of you may remember this. Uh, back in 2014, Starbucks uh, released uh, Oprah's uh, Steep Your Soul uh, collection of cup holders, coffee cup holders, you know. And they offer these little uh, pithy, little inspirational proverbs. And see if you can pick up the common theme. Your life is big. Keep reaching. The only courage you ever need is the courage to live the life you want. Live from the heart of yourself. Seek to be whole, not perfect. You are here not to shrink down to less, but to blossom in the more of who you really are. Be more splendid. Be more extraordinary. Use every moment to fill yourself up. Whenever I'm speaking to teenagers, I always describe sin by saying this, if you really want to understand sin, all you need to do is spell out the word sin, S-I-N, and then circle the center letter I, because that's the heart of the problem. That's the core of sin. It's when I, by nature, put myself, my big, splendid, extraordinary life, my desire, my intuitions about intuitions about reality, Uh, my preferences, my needs, my sense of how fast you ought to be driving in the passing lane, all of that basically hovers and rotates around me. I am God in my little... It's myself on the throne of my kingdom. That's sin. But the life God calls us to is not mapped out in the kingdom of self. God doesn't call us to a big, fabulous life 10 miles wide and one inch deep. God calls us to, men and women, an abundant life. It's not about living large. It's about living fully. It's a new kind of life and a new kind of kingdom with a new kind of king on the throne. And to live fully into that amazing yes, we have to die fully into a very real no. Jesus says, you want to follow me, first of all, you have to deny yourself. You have to deny yourself. But then later in that very same verse, he defines a relationship with a second phrase. Uh, Going on in verse 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Anybody who's been in youth ministry for more than about 20 minutes uh, has probably done this kind of group building exercise. It's pretty common where you get uh, two lines of people uh, and they, they line up uh, just perpendicular to like a table or a stage or something like this. And they're facing each other. 
And as they face each other, they reach out their arms like this. So you got people from this side reaching out that way, people over here reaching that way, they're facing each other. And then you bring somebody up here from the youth group, and they stand with their back to the group, and then you challenge them to fall back into the arms of their friends. And, and, uh, and, and of course, when they fall back and we catch them, uh, it's an opportunity to talk about trust. Or, or sometimes they fall back and we don't catch them. We talk about betrayal, uh, you know, and, 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 and the problem of pain. But, but essentially, it's, it's a beautiful illustration, a powerful illustration, because it reminds us that trust, trust is an all-in relationship. It's an all-in relationship. It's, it's laying it all on the line. And what Jesus used that phrase, when he uses that phrase, take up his cross, he's making a declaration to the disciples that, that would have been both familiar and startling. Because the Jews, especially in Galilee, they knew very well what the cross meant. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that public crucifixions were fairly common um, in that day. And uh, typically, when someone was crucified, he was forced to carry that crossbar. They called it uh, the patibulum. He was forced to carry that crossbar to the site of the execution. So when the disciples heard uh, Jesus use the phrase, take up his cross, they knew it wasn't, it wasn't just a burden you bore. It wasn't just something you carried. It was something you died on. It was about death. And, and, it, and it's, it's a little interesting because, you know, today a lot of times when you hear someone use the phrase, oh, oh that's their cross to bear, that's their cross, we, we, might, we might think of some sort of heartbreak or misfortune or affliction, but frankly, we're just as likely to hear that phrase used as just referring to some sort of everyday convenience, inconvenience, you know, some sort of, sort of disappointment. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, their hotel room had a garden view instead of a beach view, but that, that's their cross to bear. You know, or, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, the Wi-Fi was awful, but that, that's our cross to bear. You know, it, 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 the cross, let's understand this. The cross was nothing less than an instrument of death. In fact, if Jesus were talking here this morning, he would probably use the image of an electric chair. I mean, it was, it was just that stark, just that arresting. It, it was the most vivid way possible for Jesus to describe the all-in nature of discipleship. There aren't any half measures. Because let's be honest, followers of Jesus in that day weren't any different than followers of Jesus in, in, in our day. They wanted the miracles. Uh, they wanted the bread and the fish. And they wanted the political power. What they did not want, what none of us wants, is a cross. We understand that. We understand that. But discipleship is an all-in proposition. And unfortunately, an electric chair is not a chair they give you so you can rest. It's a chair they give you so you can die. Most of us as Christians, we want the chair, but we don't want the charge. We're like, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I mean, I want to I say yes to Jesus. I mean, I like the good stuff, the fellowship, uh, the worship, the, the, the blessed assurance. But Lord, don't ask me to fall back into your arms. Don't ask me to put all of my weight, all of my hopes, all of my plans, my career, my aspirations, my treasures on the promise that somehow you are going to catch me. But real discipleship calls for absolute surrender. In fact, it's interesting. Did you know that, that only Luke 
among the Gospels records that Jesus added to the phrase that word daily. Luke's the only one that mentions that, that detail. The discipleship is taking up your cross daily. And that's a, that's a critical word because that word reminds us that taking up the cross is not just a willingness to die for Jesus. It certainly would mean that for some of those who heard Jesus' words that day. We know, for example, that uh, that was true for Peter. It was certainly true for James, the brother of John. Um, and and, and, it, and it, could, it could mean that for somebody uh, here this morning at, at some point. And it, it certainly does mean that without question this morning for some of our brothers and sisters on the planet. We know that. That, that, that taking up the cross does mean on occasion you have to die for Jesus. But that word daily reminds us that the crucified life is lived out in the everyday choices that we make at work and at home and, and, and in school and in our relationships and on the team and, and in our online life. And sometimes that kind of sacrificial living can be very, very costly. In, in fact, it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, um, if you, if you recall earlier in this passage, uh, it was Peter who gave the spot on answer when Jesus said, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ of God. Because remember, remember that incident at the Last Supper? When, when Jesus said to the disciples, you know, um, guys, like one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And they're like, they can't believe it. They're just, they're just stung by it. They're just hushed by this accusation. Nobody, they can't believe it. Everybody's like, Lord, is it I? And, and nobody wants to say anything except for Peter. Peter, what does he do? Stands up, kind of thumps his chest, you know, and says, Lord, remember what he said? Lord, I won't betray you. I'll what? I'll die for you. I'll die. I mean, it's, I mean, if I had been Peter's youth pastor, I probably would have gone, Peter, that's beautiful. Would you share that Sunday night? I mean, this is great, right? Peter is willing to die for Jesus. That's awesome. There's only one problem. Remember what happened a few hours later? The great, bold Peter willing to die for Jesus denies Jesus three times. Because see, here's what, here's what Peter didn't seem to understand. When you die for somebody, you can only do it once. And typically, it will occur right near the end of your life. And what Peter didn't seem to understand is, you know what, for most of us, Jesus doesn't need us to die for him. You know what he needs us to do? To live for him. To live for him. And that kind of crucified life is a challenge to be taken up daily. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I die every day. I die every day. It's a daily discipline. And, 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 and from my own experience, I think that, that it's, that's the only way you can really approach it because it's not a one-time deal. It's not just, oh, okay, say a prayer, uh, you know, come to the altar, buy a t-shirt, watch the chosen. It, it's, it's an ongoing day-to-day discipline. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul puts it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
which is your spiritual worship. And, and, and it's not once. It's over and over and over. I think Oswald Chambers uh, nailed it when he warned us. He said, the problem with a living sacrifice is they tend to crawl off the altar. We have to take up that cross daily. That's, that's the definition of a discipleship relationship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Which brings us this morning to one final question. Why would you do it? Why would you do it? Why would anyone pay that kind of cost? Why would anyone commit to that kind of, of, of relationship? So let's go back to the text one last time. Look at verse 24. Jesus goes on to say, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. One of the, one of the uh, standard kind of youth group camp games is, is to get everybody in the swimming pool, and you divide them up into two teams, and then you grease down a watermelon and throw the watermelon into the pool and tell each team that their goal is to grab the watermelon and take it back to their end of the pool. And it's really almost impossible because, because the harder you grab, uh, the faster it squirts away. It's just exactly the opposite uh, of kind of what your instinct tells you to do. Jesus is reminding us that one of the odd paradoxes of the Christian life is the harder you grab, the less you grip. The harder you grab, the less you grip. Jesus said, whoever would save his life for my sake, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The obsession in our culture is, is to try to find your true self, to find uh, you know what really and truly brings you happiness. And then in the words of Oprah, uh, the only courage you ever need is the courage to live the life you want. Okay. 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 But how does that work when all of us with an ounce of self-awareness recognize that all of us have conflicting desires, right? I mean, carrot cake makes me happy, but so does not having a heart attack. Uh, you know, which one should I say yes to? To which should I say no? Which ones of my desires should I pursue? Which ones are real? Oh, oh, and then what about those times when the, the, the passions I courageously reach for remain beyond my reach? Like, I mean, it's nice when a billionaire media mogul tells me to be extraordinary. What about when my life is kind of normal? Like, what about when I have good days? And, 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 and bad days, and, and, and maybe even awful days. What about when my marriage is struggling? What about when we lost the baby? When my career is failing? When the nightly news just leaves me discouraged and frightened? When I'm stressed about the, about the next virus or the upcoming school year, or when I'm struggling as a parent? What happens then? Oh, race back over to Starbucks and get a cup holder. 
We live in a world that says your life is big. Keep reaching. Jesus says real life. Real life isn't about reaching big. It's about a big God, way bigger than you, who so loved the world and so desired that we live an abundant life that he reached out to us. And Jesus states this one truth three different ways. And in each case, he's not just talking about our days on earth. He's talking about our lives now and into eternity. Try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Try to gain their whole world, you're going to forfeit yourself. Turn your back on me and you will not get to see my face in glory. Most of us here this morning have heard the story of Jim Elliott, who, along with uh, four other missionaries, lost his life trying to take the gospel to the Alca Indians uh, of Ecuador. Uh, it's an amazing story. And the book uh, Shadow of the Almighty is a book that had a profound uh, impact on me as a young man because uh, I think it was the first time I really began to realize when I read that book what it might mean for me to um, to die for Jesus every day. Or, or, or maybe more to the point, what it meant for me to die to self so I could live for Jesus every day. And when you read this passage this morning, I, I think any of us would say, yeah, I, I, I want to be that person. I want to be that faithful. I want to say that kind of yes. But I know I'm, I'm not measuring up. I'm not doing it. And that's why this morning I want to just mention two facts, two critical facts as we close. Fact number one is this. Jesus has already taken up the cross on our behalf. Knowing, knowing that we are sinners, knowing that we're going to fall short, knowing that we crawl off the altar, he shed his own blood so that we could stand before our Father and his holy angels without shame. In an act of mercy and grace that totally and fully, radically redefined our relationship with God. So instead of receiving his wrath, we are adopted as children, as his sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. All we need to do this morning is embrace that truth, accept that by faith, fall back into his arms. That's a critical fact. But the second fact is equally important because maybe you're listening to this and say, well, I don't know. And now that I'm hearing all this, it just sounds really serious, like take up your cross, holy cow. You know what? You can't do this. You can't do this. I can't do this. None of us can do it. Only Jesus in us by his Holy Spirit can live out this discipleship relationship the way it's intended. Again, it's one of those upside-down paradoxes. We have to empty ourselves to be full. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That was precisely the choice that Jim Elliott willingly made that January day back in 1956 when he and his buddies touched down their little Piper aircraft on a little beach in the Corey River. They renamed the little beach. They called it Palm Beach. And they waited there to make contact with these people, hoping, hoping that they might share with them for the very first time the words of the gospel. 
If you know the story, you know that three days later, they were all dead. They were all dead, viciously attacked by the very tribe that they hoped to reach. Of course, when the news got back here to the States, people were asking, you know, was it worth it? I mean, these are five young men, husbands, uh, fathers, just, just gone, just snuffed. Was it too high a price to pay? I can tell you this. Jim Elliott would have had no doubt about the answer to that question. And we know this because they found in his waterlogged journal these words written decisively in Jim's steady hand. I've often wondered if he had read Luke 9, 23 recently because this is what he wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's read that phrase together. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we are stunned this morning by your courageous, by your gracious, by your loving act on the cross that you have already taken up a cross, that you died for us, and you did it so that we might live abundant life, so that our sins might be covered by your blood. I pray for somebody here today who's wrestling with what it means for them to say a genuine yes and what might be the implications in terms of, of some very real no's. I pray, Lord, for those of us today who are struggling with the risk of that all-in relationship, falling back into the Father's arms. Help us today, Lord, to recognize we can trust you because you love us so completely. We pray this this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.